This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to the now publicly available Great War Channel podcast, where you can now enjoy all our 30-something episodes in our archive, including the Patreon-only episodes that we recorded in the last two years, and where we have a very exciting summer ahead of us with plenty of world-class historians that we are going to interview. And what do we have for our listeners today, Jesse? We have another uh, rock star. I know I'm biased, the First World War is my thing, but nonetheless, um, we are gonna be talking to Dr. Jonathan Boff, who wrote a book about Crown Prince Rupprecht, but it's so much more than that. Um, it's about Germany's conduct of the war on the Western Front. I found out about it, uh, just when it came out a couple of years ago, it was recommended by uh, a historian friend of mine in Canada. And it's a really interesting perspective. I, I think he does a great job of teasing out a lot of the themes that are interesting to me, like the German perspective or comparing the two or how is the army connected to an individual commander and how's that connected to a society? You know, what are the results of that on the battlefield? Um, these are pretty these are pretty cool things, right? What do the Germans think about stuff that we kind of already know what the British think about a particular battle or um so yeah, this this to me was a was a great read. I've used it again for other projects we've done in the meantime, just recently for example. So I was quite excited to uh, to talk to him. Yeah, and I think all you out there in internet land will enjoy this interview very much. The book is called Haig's Enemy. It's a very successful book uh, and has won numerous awards, has been translated into multiple languages. And we are very happy and also a bit proud that Dr. Boff has agreed to uh, be interviewed by us. Some of the questions that we ask are from our Patreons. And uh, this is something that we will do uh, continue in the future that we will ask our Patreons if they have any questions for the experts in here that, they, that we interview. Um, so if you want to, well, support our project in general, and if you want to ask world-renowned historians personal questions about their research topics, you can always do so on Patreon. Uh, so your support would be very much appreciated. And now, without further ado, here's the interview with Dr. Boff. So I'm very happy to be joined today on the podcast by Dr. Jonathan Boff, who's a senior lecturer in modern history at the University of Birmingham and uh, important for our purposes today, also the author of the book Heg's Enemy, Crown Prince Ruprecht in and Germany's War on the Western Front. So Dr. Boff, thank you uh, very much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much indeed. All right, so we've got a few questions here. Uh, some of them are from our viewers as well. But let's start off general. 
what drew you to uh, Crown Prince Rupprecht and why did you get interested in that particular topic, that angle? Well, two things came together at pretty much the same time. The big thing, if you like, was that I felt pretty strongly that certainly the the Anglo-Saxon historiography of the First World War is written very much from a British Commonwealth perspective. There's not an awful lot about the enemy. Indeed, there are many books you could read about the British Army on the Western Front and not even be aware that there were any Germans or any French anywhere near. Um, and so I was looking for a project that would give me a chance to, to, to look at the war from both sides of the barbed wire, uh, if you like, uh, and to, to, to try and uh, make or try and help people understand that this was, after all, a war. There were two sides to it. It was a dynamic process that was going on. Uh, and at the same time, I was just finishing up a previous book, which had been about the, the last hundred days of the First World War. And as I was doing research for that, as, as you will know, the best place to do research, one of the best places to do research into the German army, after the, because of the destruction of the federal records in Potsdam in the closing uh, in 1945, uh, is in the local state uh, military records, and particularly the Munich uh, military records of the Bavarian army. And, uh, and I was doing research there because Crown Prince Ruprecht was the commander of the forces that, that the British troops I was primarily writing about um, were fighting against. And, and while I was going through some of the records there, I found in, in you know, one of those sort of random files you come across in archives sometimes, which is what makes our, my job fun, uh, a little, um, like a passport, a, 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 just a, a piece of paper giving um, free transit from Belgium into the Netherlands of uh, the Marquis de, de uh, Spanish name uh, and his party. And, and this was dated, uh, I think, 9th of November, 1918. And I thought, this is this is a funny thing to find in the Bavarian military archives. Why are they here? And when I sort of dug around a little bit more, I found out that that it was the Spanish, the Spanish Marquis was actually the Spanish ambassador to Belgium. Uh, and he was essentially smuggling Crown Prince Ruprecht into the, into the Netherlands uh, under a false name, uh, Herr Landsberg. Uh, um, um, to get him out of Belgium and keep him away from the Bolsheviks who were taking over the German military at the time. Uh, the Netherlands at the time, as you will know, were, were neutral. So he would have been, he was safe there from the Allies and hopefully safe from the German soldiers too. Um, and I thought, well, that's quite an interesting story. You know, here is this general, proud scion of, you know, one of the oldest royal families in Europe. Uh, major prop of the imperial regime uh, in in uh, uh, in Germany before 1914, crown prince of Bavaria, and yet he's having to sneak away into overseas disguised as a chauffeur. Uh, you know what happened between those two points? How does a how does a field marshal in the German army end up on the run in in Holland? And I thought that sort of uh, that story uh, was looked like it had the potential to be an interesting story to tell, and that was why I went off and started doing a lot more research on Ruprecht himself. And 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 luckily, and I'm afraid sometimes you just have to be lucky, particularly if you're not good. Um, it, it turned out that 
you know, his military career was going to enable me to do what I started off by saying in terms of, of showing the German side of the story uh, of the First World War on the Western Front the whole way through from, from beginning to end. So it, it, the two things came together in a rather beautiful way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually what uh, what I like the most about the book. I have a very strong, similar feeling about uh, the English language historiography that's always bugged me, even in Canada, where, you know, we, we have another national language. Um, but uh, yeah, I suppose uh, Ruprecht himself was uh, asking some of the same questions as you as he was on his way to Holland. You know, how did I get from point A to point B? Um as far as the title of the book is concerned, we had a viewer who's who's wondering about the choice of title because I mean the book is clearly centered around Ruprecht and his context in the in in the on the Western Front, but Haig is the first name in the title. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to lie to you. Of course, there's a bit of, of marketing involved in this. It, sure. it, it, it it's aimed at a British audience um, in Britain. Everyone knows who Douglas Haig is. No one would know who Crown Prince uh, Ruprex was. So um, that's been a long time. We spent long, uh, I and the publisher spent a long time talking about titles backwards and forwards and so on and so forth. And and um, uh, and eventually thought that um, this was the best we could come up with. Anyway, um, by the way, of course, it had absolutely zero traction in the United States because they don't know who Douglas Haig is either. But. <laughs> That was, that was that was my silly mistake. Should have thought about that. About that. I I can um, imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but to be honest, you know, it, what else could if one had called it the general or something like that, it would have been so general that it's very hard to tell really what it what it was all going to be about. But it, but it's not just marketing. To be fair, I don't think um, there is there is a correspondence here between these two men, uh, in the sense that. From October 1914 through to November 1918, so all by the last three months, uh, the first three months of the war, uh, Ruprecht was fighting against the British. He was the main German commander in the British se uh, in the sector opposite the British uh, the whole way through. That that British sector got bigger, of course, as the war went on. To begin with, there were many more French than than British, but but nonetheless, he was, if you like, a sort of consistent factor. The supreme commanders changed: Moltke to Falkenhayn uh, to Ludendorff and Hindenburg. Uh, the individual army commanders changed, of course, uh, underneath uh, Ruprecht, but but he was, if you like, a constant, uh, and he was he was there the whole time, and. You know, I, I thought I didn't want to, I, I wouldn't pretend, and you can't pretend, that there was any kind of personal rivalry between Douglas Haig and uh, and Crown Prince Ruprecht. I think I, 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 I did count it up. I think in, in, in Ruprecht's diary, and one of the reasons he's interesting is because he left a very voluminous, voluminous diary, so the sources are good, and lots of good letters. Um, in his diary, he does, he does mention Douglas Haig, but only three times uh, in three years. And and he spells his name wrong twice. Um, just you know, it's only a four-letter name. It's not that difficult to spell, right? <laughs> um, uh, so uh, and Douglas Haig only mentions Ruprecht once or twice in his diaries uh, as well. That, so you know, the kind of um, propaganda, if you like, that particularly during the Second World War, uh, British propaganda loved pitting Montgomery against Rommel and pretending that there was some kind of personal rivalry between these two men, which both of them in, played up to, 
a little bit, to be fair. Um, you know, that kind of dynamic didn't exist in the First World War. Indeed, both Ruprecht and Haig, I am quite sure, would have thought it was rather vulgar uh, and a bit beneath them to, to engage in that kind of theatrics. Um, and uh, so there was no personal rivalry, but, at, but as a matter of fact, they were both doing the same job on opposite sides of the uh, of, of no man's land. Therefore, I thought, and, and Haig has been, uh, well, frankly, obsessively poured over his career uh, by uh, you know a variety of really good historians, and so there was a very good there's a very good base of information about what that kind of job looks like on the British side and what what Haig did and didn't do in the course of the war, and so this is, if you like, trying to redress the balance a little bit, because the same is not true on the German side. The German German historians don't write this kind of history uh, on the whole, or have tended not to. Um, and uh, and again, you know, so there are, there, are, there are good biographies of Ludendorff and of Hindenburg and of the, some of these people, of Falkenhayn, but, <clears throat> but the next level down tends to get overlooked. So I thought that was another gap that I could fill. So just uh, to emphasize once again to our viewers that uh, this book goes beyond biography. It's not just about Ruprecht himself or, or his uh, development or his ideas alone. It's in a context. And one of the parts of that context that, um, that you point out is that you write that uh, Ruprecht's career lets us kind of challenge some of the preconceptions about the First World War and even about modernity as a, as a kind of, as an idea. So uh, give us a little, for those of us who haven't read the book yet uh, out there, the listeners, give us a little hint. What are some of these preconceptions that you can challenge by Ruprecht's uh, story? Sure. Well, I think, again, and this comes back, and thank you for picking up on the fact that it's, it's more than a biography, because it is supposed to be using the biography as a gateway into these broader themes. That's, that's very much uh, what I was trying to achieve. Um, uh, I think some of the preconceptions that you see again in the Anglo sphere about the First World War, uh, I've mentioned, I've hinted at a little bit already. Number one, that the, the, the British are sort of in, are exceptional uh, in the way that they operate during this war, and particularly in the way that they learn uh, how to get better at fighting modern warfare. Um, uh, so you don't get any sense that um, the, the British had allies. And of course, the, the British were the junior partner in the coalition in France, not the senior partner uh, for most of the for most of the time. So uh, I wanted to try and and so one of the pre, so one of the things I wanted to point out was how, from a German perspective, Britain was not the number one enemy, uh, at least not military, not on the battlefield. On the battlefield, the number one enemy was the French. And that was who they were scared of, more scared of, and that's who they spent more time worrying about who to how to defeat than the British. Politically, different story, actually, and obviously at sea, completely different story again. But 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 in terms of the problem that was facing the soldiers, uh, it was primarily seen as a French problem, not a British problem. So that's that's one perhaps. I'll just give you a few sort of almost random examples. Um, a second one would be. I think most of us in, intuitively, when we think about the First World War, we think about two lines of men stuck in muddy trenches for four months, for, sorry, for four years, not going anywhere and not moving anywhere. It looks like a very static, stalemated situation. And of course, in a sense, it was. But, but it was a stalemate born of a very intense, dynamic process of, of measure and countermeasure 
uh, where it just so happened that no one had got yet, had yet got to the point, at least not, not until 1918, where they were able to break that stalemate. It wasn't that everyone was just sitting there waiting for something to happen, um, which I think is the, a sense that one can sometimes, or actually the sense that one gets from a lot of the literature is that everyone was just sitting there waiting to die. And, and that, I think, would be a third preconception that I would want to, to, to sort of push against. You know, that's obviously not where most people uh, were, were coming from uh, uh, most of the time. And then, and then when it comes, uh, and so that, and so that, so that leads on to a to a to an assumption, perhaps that um, that the soldiers of the First World War were victims, um, that they were on the receiving end, if you like, of industrial technological changes, political changes, which which took away their agency, made they were made, meant they were completely passive. Uh, in this process. Well, again, that's not the way they felt about themselves, and that's not what they were trying to achieve. They, they thought they were doing something worthwhile and were, and were doing it in a worthwhile manner. Um, and when it comes to sort of modernity more broadly, well, I mean, you know, academic historians tie themselves in the most appalling knots about what modernity means uh, and whether it means anything at all, and if it does, what how we can analyze it and so on. And so I don't sort of want to get into that. But, but I think... It is kind of fair to say that in some sort of general sense, most of us feel that um, over the last hundred years or so, um, the world has changed. And it's changed a lot, and it's changed quickly, and it might even be changing quicker every decade than the previous one. Maybe, I'm not so sure about that, but anyway, that, that's, sort of the, that's the perception. Uh, and so, and so, one of the issues of history, and this is particularly true of German history, uh, but also of British history as well. Um, so, one of the issues that that throws up is: to what extent were the problems of Germany in the first half of the twentieth century caused by an inability to adapt to the modern world in which it was starting to starting to find itself? And and if you know, if if sadly as it is. The problem of German history in the first half of the 20th century is the problem of European history in the first half of the 20th century, and arguably of a lot of world history in the first half of the 20th century. Then that seems to me to be a pretty urgent question to, to 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 have a look at if you want to understand the 20th century. And so the capacity of the institution, German institutions, and German society to 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 respond to all, of course, the whole world of literally a whole world of things changing. But the military is a particularly narrow, focused, a case study, if you like, of uh, a subset of that change uh, that one can study in a relatively closed off environment, if you like, the battlefield, seemed to me to be a useful exercise to try and, uh, to, to, to try and pursue. And that kind of leads me into our uh, next question, which is, Uh, on this general topic of German society and its particular characteristics and so on, you uh, talk about how some of the weaknesses of the army reflect some of some of those characteristics of, of broader German society. And I thought that was a really interesting way of uh, going about it, but I can imagine that's a bit of a slippery uh, argument to make stick. So how how did you go about it, and what are some of those some examples of that? Well, I, I, I mean, I think the the quick answer is that I chickened out of going too far down that road um, because because it could take you 
into volume into the depths of German history. Exactly. I mean, I, I'd be like, um, you know, some of these German historians that write these sort of three thousand page books, and things like, I haven't got time or, or energy to do that. Um, but I think uh, so. To come back to the question, so but 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 it does seem there are some themes that I could bring out that mainly that people have brought out in other in other work, and there were there were several sort of or perhaps three strands to this. The first is that the war, um, you know, that, that it's certainly very easy and particularly easy for non-Germans to forget what a young country Germany was in 1914-1918. Um, within the lifetime of most of the people that were alive, Germany had not been a single uh, a single country. Uh, Ruprecht was born in 1869, so two years before the formation of Germany uh, himself, and everyone in power, more or less, was of that generation or a little bit older. And, uh, and what had happened, I think, was that a lot of the religious divides, a lot of the regional divides, a lot of the class divisions within German society, some of which were caused by industrialization, some of which were predated the formation of the empire in 1871. Largely under Bismarck, they had managed to, or Bismarck had largely managed to, well, in some cases exacerbated them, but nonetheless, he'd managed to suppress them. Um, and he'd managed to, to form a single country out of this, uh, out of this very diverse, very disparate um, country. Now, you know, you live there, you know this better than I, much better than I do. But English people don't 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 see this. They think Germany is they think Germans are Germans. They don't understand the difference between Hamburg and Munich on almost every level uh, of uh, of of culture and society. Uh, and that's in the modern world, right? So so how much less must they understand about it a uh, uh, hundred years ago? So, so but so what you see, I think, in the in the, with the First World War, one of the factors in the First World War is the bubbling up of all these suppressed divisions between different religions, between different classes, between different regions, uh, back up and into becoming live problems, which then burst out in, in various forms in the November Revolution in 1918 and subsequent events over the next few years as, uh, as Weimar tries to, to stabilize itself. Um, <clears throat> And and that sort of leads into, I suppose, the, a second issue, which is which is the institutions that, that exist to tie this country together. Um, the army is a particularly interesting one because, uh, as you as you will know, as your listeners will know, before 1914, or rather in peacetime, uh, individual German states still maintained their own armies, although they were run on lines. They were, they were all aligned with the Prussian system of doing things, and the Kaiser was designated as the supreme overlord uh, in the event of war. So when when war was broke broke out in 1914, the army, if you like, overnight became an imperial institution, but it still had these regional problems, and there's nowhere was that clearer than with the Bavarians. Um, uh, and as the war goes on, the frictions between Bavarians and Prussians, for instance, within the high command of the German army, start to, to, to make themselves felt again uh, and, uh, and become increasingly problematic uh, as, as, the war, as the war goes on. So I think what you, 
and, and that's symptomatic, and this is the final point I make on this, of the fact that Bismarck had created a system which only Bismarck could manage. Uh, and as soon as there wasn't a Bismarck, someone with the genius of Bismarck and the sheer deviousness of Bismarck uh, to, to, uh, to, to do so, then the system was already in trouble and needed either reform or another genius. And of course, it didn't have a genius. It had Wilhelm II, very far from a genius. Uh, uh, and and he didn't have geniuses around him either. And even if he had had, he probably wouldn't have known how to use them. So, um, uh, so that's what I mean. I think by some of these inst the institutions themselves also not really being fit for purpose um, uh, in the way they operated. And just to give you one very quick microcosm of that, the German command system or the command system of the German army itself, I think is you know looks very old fashioned certainly from a, a modern perspective, and even at the time, in the sense that the, the influence of the, of the Kaiser was extremely strong over who got the jobs, in, who got the good jobs in the German army, and, and therefore it was still run. You know, the promotion system was not that different from the promotion system that had operated under Frederick the Great. Now, that had worked very well for Frederick the Great, but that was a long time, that was a long time ago, uh, and the world was now rather different. Um, and so the inability to reform that and, and, and improve it, I think, was an important factor in Germany's defeat. All right. I can imagine that uh, Lloyd George might have been slightly envious of the Kaiser's influence over who had what positions in the army. Um, now, uh, sticking with this army, this, uh, this partly flawed uh, institution, um, and let's couple that with this idea of the, the famous idea of the British learning curve. The British come, they have a mass army for the first time. Most of them don't know what they're doing. Then after the Somme, they learn and play an important role in defeating Germany. That's kind of this, you know, uh, what you hear quite often. But uh, in spite of their flaws, the Germans were also learning. Um, but you, you emphasize, uh, in contrast to the British learning curve, the deterioration of the performance of the German army. So how did that deterioration end up outweighing the German learning curve and ending in their, in their defeat? Well, the way I see this is, uh, I think your, your characterization of the British army is absolutely correct. So the, you know, the small professional BAF of, that goes to war in 1914 is destroyed to all intents and purposes in the course of 1914. Uh, the very few survivors are then spread very thinly across this huge volunteer force, and it takes them a long time to to learn how to, to how to fight this kind of war uh, again. The Germans are starting from a much higher base. This is this is, after all, the war for which they have prepared for fifty years. Um, they uh, and. Although, of course, there are bits of it that surprise them in 1914 and 1915, they have a better, they have a, I think they have a better system and a better overall grasp of what is likely to be required uh, at the beginning of the war. Indeed, the whole military, I would argue, is set up to, to win a quick war, not to, not to fight the kind of long war that they get, they get dragged into. Now, <clears throat> there are two ways of looking at but what goes next? If you believe Ludendorff and, uh, and and a lot of the German generals from their memoirs between the wars, the problem is that the level of German casualties in the first two years of the war, particularly in 1916, is so high 
that this fantastic German Continental Army has been, again, largely destroyed and turned into a citizen militia, uh, which is not as technically skilled and not as motivated as the army of the first half of the war, and that most of the most of the problems of the second half of the war can be put down to that. All those problems that don't that you can't blame on the civilians on the home front anyway. Um, a, a second way of looking at, at it is just to say, well, you know, when you're when the British are starting from a very low base, their pace of in, uh, uh, their, 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 the slope of their learning curve, if you like, is very steep. The Germans are starting from a higher base and are, are not so good at learning and adapting on the on on the game. And at some point, those two curves are going to intersect, and that's largely, I think, what happens. So, so, so the Germans, as you're absolutely right, they they do learn, they do they do get better at certain aspects, um, but they also aren't learning fast enough. Uh, and particularly in 1918, the Allies, I think, and, and a large part of this is the material superiority and the manpower superiority of the Allies. They just start asking too many questions of the Germans, of the German high command. And the, the German high command can't answer them, and nor is it prepared to delegate, or is not capable of delegating uh, to, those, to, to lower levels to solve the problems on their own, uh, if you like. Uh, and, and as a result, um, it's uh, the brain of the German army, if you like, goes catatonic and 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 and, and, and no longer functions uh, and therefore um, can't respond to any outside stimulus actually it just sort of you know, other than perhaps an obsession with tactics right right that's right they try they try to to they they, they know that they know how to solve tactical problems and therefore they, they go out looking for tactical problems to solve rather than actually stepping back and saying, right, what are the real problems that, that we're facing here? I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to you. A large part of this, as I was when I was writing this book and thinking about it, a, lot, a large part of me was thinking about the Americans and the British in Iraq and Afghanistan and, uh, and, 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 and the ability of, of both those militaries to, to innovate while they were fighting. And I, and I was doing a lot of work with both militaries um, uh, over the last ten years or so, uh, about these kind of questions, and uh, and it struck me that there are some there were some similarities, uh, and and that you know you, you could you could argue for as long as you like about whether you should have patrol houses scattered in villages throughout Afghanistan or have big central bases with guys going off in helicopters to where they were needed when they were needed. But but neither of those answer, neither of those really identified the real problem, which was that the Afghans didn't want them there, uh, and that it wasn't a war that was winnable militarily. And so I suppose, at the back of my mind, I was thinking that that the British and the Americans were were making some of the same mistakes as Ludendorff and Co had made in 1618. Wow, that's quite an interesting uh, little bit of context to behind the book. That's I'll have to reread it now with uh, with that in mind. Um, now, uh, yes, perhaps for the, the last question here, one that, again, this idea of perspective that particularly appealed to me, you mentioned that, uh, some of the battles that 
you know, the British consider very significant and there's been a lot written about them and so on. Of course, I guess I'm thinking of maybe Neuf Chapelle and these kinds of things. The Germans, they don't really register them in the same way. They're at best a footnote, I would say. Um, yeah. And can you give maybe one or two examples uh, of that difference in perspective and, and maybe why? I think, I mean, I think Neuf Chapelle is a very good one. It's a it's a very small scale operation compared with the the kind of battles that the Germans and the French have been fighting up until until that point. Uh, uh, there are other battles in 1915 that would certainly fit into the same category. Festubert, uh, for instance, very well known in Britain, well, relatively well known in Britain, uh, not known at all in Germany because it's a disaster. You know, from the German perspective, it's all over in about an hour. The British come out of the trench; they all get shot down. Uh, uh, and the Germans go home and have their tea, you know, and that's it. There's, there's nothing to talk about. Um, uh, and the, but I think a more interesting example is the Battle of Luz, which you can read. You can read accounts of the Battle of Luz in, in the autumn of 1915, and and think this is this massive British offensive. Um, and it, it was the biggest battle that the British Army had fought up until then, anyway. Um, but it's only one tiny part of a of an immense. <laughs> French offensive, um, uh, and it really is the, you know the diversion to the diversionary effort uh, actually of uh, in in sort of uh, in uh, overall Allied terms, uh, and again so so from the German point of view, it's kind of well we lost this mining village, the, the British captured this mining village in Belgium, but you know we can get it back anytime we in France we can get it back anytime we like. Um, what's the fuss all about? You know, we've got a big battle, we've got two big battles going on against the French. And the final example I would give you, because I think it's more interesting, and I think it gets to the point of, you know, a, a, a lot of the, one of the themes that's run through our conversation uh, about about Anglo-centrism is, is the first day of the Battle of Ypres, the third Battle of Ypres, I should say, on the 31st of July, 1917. Um, now, from, from a British perspective, this is a long-awaited and huge offensive. Um, and it's relatively successful, but it's all over in a day. Uh, because the weather, the, the weather breaks, and then, as we know, you get stuck into a three-month-long uh, slugfest uh, through, through, the, through the Flanders mud, uh, which does turn into... The Germans call it a recent ring. It's a, you know, a, a, a rest, giant wrestling match, um, a very major battle. But, it, but if you look at the German accounts of that first day, uh, they are broadly, uh, the British attacked, uh, made a little bit of ground, but we were able to contain it all well within our defensive systems. Uh, local troops were perfectly capable of handling the, the situation and with their own reserves, didn't need to send them any more troops or anything like that. Uh, pretty good day's work from a German defensive perspective. Uh, so it's a very, it, it shows a very different perspectives, I think, of these things. Now, okay, the Germans didn't know that the, that the, that the British and the French were going to carry on hammering away for another four months uh, at that point. And so it didn't have that kind of significant, the same level of significance uh, for them, perhaps, as it had for the British who had been planning it for months. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I think what it, what it shows is that um, you know, the effects of operations of this kind are, are are often felt by the enemy to be very le much less significant than they feel to those who have managed to put the operations together. Yeah, I think that's um, 
that's a good note to wind up the interview because I think that kind of encapsulates part of what uh, readers hopefully uh, get out of the book, or at least that I did, is this really interesting interplay of perspectives that you don't um, always see in some of the in some of the literature. Um, if our listeners want to get their hands on your book, which I believe is coming out as well in paperback now, um, where can they best do that? Um, it's out in paperback. Yes, it came out in, in paperback in about April. Um, so it should be available through all good bookshops, uh, uh, Amazon, obviously, uh, and other online uh, online bookshops, or indeed from um, www.oup.com. Oxford University Press, Oxford, yeah. Okay. It's Oxford University Press, who are the publishers, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, writing it. I hope you enjoyed reading it, and I hope that many of your listeners said that they want to read it. I certainly did enjoy it, and I very much enjoyed uh, speaking with you today. So uh, I want to thank you again, Dr. Buff, for uh, joining us, and I hope that our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. Super. Thank you very much indeed. We will see you soon. As I said in the beginning, there are plenty more interviews uh, lined up for this summer. So stay tuned. And if you enjoy this podcast, maybe also leave us a review or recommend us to a friend. Thank you.